Well, good morning, you guys. If y'all are visiting here at our Southwood campus uh, for the first time this morning, we are uh, excited that you guys are here. Uh, My name is Trey Corey. I'm our college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and uh, we're just thrilled that you guys are here with us. Uh, Just to kind of reiterate one of the announcements we made, just want to let you guys know again, after uh, college class this morning, immediately following the service, we're going to head out to Slotsky's, and so we'd love for you guys to come hang with us. Uh, We'll go right after the service. We'd love just a chance to hang. And then actually next week, we're going to serve you guys lunch. And so if you guys want to plan on being here next week, uh, we're going to break out some food for you guys, serve you guys lunch, and just have a chance just here as a community and as a campus just to fellowship with each other. And so we'd love for you guys to plan on that, plan on being here next week. But if you guys will turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, uh, particularly verses 1 to 4. Hebrews chapter 2. As you guys turn there, I will uh, read it for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You pray with me real quick. Father God, we give you great thanks for that which you have delivered to us, that which was spoken through the Lord, that which was confirmed by witnesses, that which was uh, brought alongside of with signs and miracles and wonders that validated that which you've put in our very hands this morning. And Father, I pray that as we open it, Lord, I pray that our very opening of it would bring light, uh, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would uh, guide this time. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, put to death within me that element that wants to be approved of and wants to be liked. Um, And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would take this time, you would take my words, and they would be yours. Um, That you would do with me and you would do with this time however you see fit. And Father, I pray for us, no matter where we are spiritually, no matter where we've been this week, Lord, I pray that your spirit would arrest us by your truth. That you would captivate our attentions, that you would captivate our minds, and that you would draw forth our hearts to you. And Father, I pray this morning that as we walk through this text, Lord, I pray that you would move us to maturity. That you would move us to a place that we would have a longing and that we would begin to think about who we're going to be way down the road. And whether we'll be still clinging to Jesus Christ or whether we'll have left him in the dust, Lord. Father, I pray for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I mentioned this to you guys last week, but Marcy and I, um, in the midst of walking with you guys through dating uh, and and walking with many of you guys and and hearing your stories, I'll tell you guys, Marcy and I have tried the matchmaking business quite a bit, um, and we have never actually been successful once, all right? Uh, We've probably tried about 15 different times, and we're batting zero for 15, all right? So if you guys need a date, we're not your person to help out with, all right? Um, But what we have kind of realized over time is, though, while we're not great starters of romance for other people, we are great finishers, all right? Uh, We can get people to the finish line. And so as I kind of have a chance to hang out with guys a lot, one of the conversations I find myself in quite a bit is guys who are right there at the edge of the finish line. They're ready to drop a knee, ready to bust out a certain little ring on a certain little finger and with certain little words and an invitation toward a lifelong relationship. And so because I get to be in those conversations, I have a phrase that I get to say that I love just being able to say, and that's this, I've got a guy. Um, I don't know why, whether it's in any context, just that whenever you have a guy, it's just fun to be able to say, I've got a guy, and I've got a diamond guy here in town, all right? And so for you guys that are maybe even pushing toward that spot, come talk to me, all right? I'll help you out, all right? Um, and what I've often noticed for guys that are moving that direction is, uh, for the most part, they're making a financial decision that is the biggest they've ever made in their life. They're probably about to spend a lot more on one uh, little circular item with a little diamond on it than they've ever spent in any other time in their life. In fact, it may be worth more than their car itself that they're driving currently, right? (laughs) So what we men do for romance, right? 
Uh, it doesn't matter the price, dang the price, you're taking your baby out on a date and you're putting a ring on her finger, right? And so I've got a guy, and the thing I love about my guy is he is uh, incredibly gifted and skilled in this craft of making diamonds and rings, right? He's really creative. Even more so, he's got a, an amazing personality that's probably as big as Shamu at SeaWorld, all right? Uh, he is just an amazing character. He's the kind of guy that after an hour with him, you're going to feel like you've been his best friend for a decade, all right? He's also kind of a bit of a stand-up comedian, and so he's going to have you laughing for an hour, even as you feel like he's your best friend for an hour, all right? And so uh, he's just a, a funny, funny dude. And yet what I love most about him, though, is that he is incredibly gutsy, all right? Uh, he, he can step into a situation, and even though you may feel like his best friend, and even though you may have been laughing with him for an hour, he can step into a situation and speak truth, and you may no longer be laughing, and you may no longer feel like his best friend because he's a man of truth. Uh, one of my favorite stories for him was of a time he was working with a guy. Uh, he had, this guy had worked all summer long. He put aside about $3,000 for a ring, which uh, $3,000 will get you a pretty good ring. Uh, it won't get you a gigantic, enormous you know, ring that you see in magazines, but it'll get you a good ring. And so he had put this together. And then for the last month, he and my diamond guy had been working on a set of designs and a set of options within his budget that he felt good about. And he kind of narrowed his list and he kind of narrowed into about three or four different ring options, three or four different diamond options that he felt good about that fit his budget and that his heart really was, was feeling like this would be great for my girl. And then as he kind of got to that, finally that last meeting, that last decision when he was going to pull the trigger and make the decision, he finally decided, you know what? Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring my girl into the office. I'm going, to let, I'm going to surprise her and let her choose her own ring. And so he worked it up, and it was perfect for his girl. She was floored. She came in all surprised. Here they were. They were going to pick out their ring. She's all lovey-dovey on him. They're holding hands, you know. She's going to spend the rest of her life with him. And it's just one of these moments, you know, and she's floored in humility. But here they are going to choose a diamond ring that she's always wanted for her whole life. And so, uh, as, as my diamond guy does, he starts to kind of educate the person on a diamond. And what you will know, ladies, is he spends a lot more time on that education time with guys and girls because girls know all about clarity, carrot size, color, you know, that, that, that's kind of, they got that down. And so, he kind of goes through his spiel real quickly for the girl just for kind of also refresh the guy. And then he kind of brings out the three or four diamonds that they've kind of really landed on and the ring designs that they've come up with that this guy can afford and that this guy feels great about. And as they're kind of looking through it, uh, this girl is, is uh, you know, bless her heart, but she's kind of uh, beginning to not show the greatest interest towards the three or four rings that he's chosen, all right? Are you with me? And so she's kind of doing it subtly, though, because she begins to ask questions about other designs, other diamonds, other rings that she can see in the office. Uh, and so my diamond guy, kind of sensing what's going on, trying to wanting to avert what could become really, really awkward, kind of keeps bringing her back to these three or four rings and keeps praising the qualities of each ring and, and slowly, but also tries to help her realize that we're within a budget, you know. And so uh, that conversation is going on. And eventually, though, this girl lets it out that, frankly, she will not get married unless she can have at least a carrot on her finger. All right. You guys did exactly what the diamond guy did. Jaw drop, tongue on the ground, are you kidding me? And so since he's kind of a character, he decides to try to make a swing at this and try to make a joke out of it, and she's not budging. And it's getting really, really awkward, all right? Um, and then all of a sudden, that warm, cozy, you know, lovey-dovey feel was leaving the room real fast. The humility that she had walked into the room with was gone in a second, all right? And now it's getting really, really awkward because now she's beginning to cuss at the rings that are actually present, Okay. All of a sudden, in about 10 minutes, she's completely switched angles, switched personalities, switched complete personas, okay? I, I still to this day don't know exactly what happened, but my diamond guy, kind of sensing the situation, begins to take his diamonds and begins to put them back into their sleeves and begins to tuck them back into the desk. 
And he's doing it so, slowly but surely, but eventually she notices now and she begins to kind of headbutt him saying, hey, we're here to design a ring. And why are you putting the diamonds and the rings up? Because how are we going to design anything we can't see and put our hands on? And eventually at this point, my diamond guy, realizing that she's not joking, turns her, his attention from her to the guy. And he says to the guy, I don't think you guys are ready to get married. And in fact, let me say to you right off the bat, I, I don't think she's necessarily the right girl for you either. In fact, and I think that because she's far more concerned about the diamond ring size on her finger than she is the man on her arm and the marriage that she's entering into. And so my advice for you is run fast, run now, and run far away. As you can suspect, the girl wigs out, all right? Just flips out, chews into him, you know, the whole, hey, who, you don't even know me. You've had 10 minutes with me. Who are you to say anything about our relationship? She grabs her stuff and she just runs out, all right? She slams the door so loud and so hard that the glass walls that surround the door almost crack. They just start shaking. She goes out to the elevator bay where she's going to go down back to her car and, sh- and through different sets of walls, they can hear her cussing as clearly as a sailor in a way that would have made Chris Rock blush, all right? She just is done. She's just gone off the handle. This poor chap, this poor dude, is just sitting there completely disoriented like a whipped dog, all right? He does not know which way to go. He doesn't know what to do. And so he kind of starts gathering his stuff. And my diamond guy says to him, hey, where are you going? He's like, I'm going to go follow her. And my diamond guy goes, no, no, no. You're staying right here. Don't move an inch. You're not going to go see her. You're not going to talk to her. You're going to stay right here. And in fact, I need to know who I need to call right now. He's like, what? He goes, I'm calling your roommates because tonight we're hanging out because you're not hanging out with her. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Gutsy, all right? And then my diamond guy, as they keep talking, finally the guy's like, you know, maybe you're right. My diamond guy's like, no, no, no. You know I'm right. (laughs) You absolutely know I'm right. Uh, The story kind of unfolds and they don't get married and it's a good thing. And and at that point in time, um, she may have just had a bad day, let me just say. Um, She may have had a bad day. Who knows what went on, but the timing definitely for them wasn't right. And in fact, they didn't get married and that wasn't what the Lord had down the road for them. And yet for that guy, poor dude, in about a 20-minute appointment, his whole world flips upside down. In a 20-minute appointment, he's going to come and get a warning shot delivered across his bow. He's going to have a whole new discovered reality and a whole new discovered truth. And then a diamond guy is going to come across and provide him a warning that's going to be a fork in the road for him. And he's going to have to make a choice. In the midst of the new reality and the new truth he just discovered about this girl and about where they're headed, he's going to make a choice as to whether he's going to cling to that new reality and that new truth. Or if he's going to take the easier route and head back to her and head back toward a marriage that probably isn't going to be fulfilling but would have been a lot easier to move towards than to hold back and cling to a new truth that he just got. As we open Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, what in the world does this story have to do with what we're going to look at this morning? Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, we read four verses. That's all we're going to look at this morning because this is actually quite a challenging section, all right? Hebrews 2 is the first of five different warning passages in the book of Hebrews. These five different warning passages really are what get a lot of the discussion and get a lot of the intrigue, get a lot of the difficulty of the book of Hebrews. And these warning passages, have, people have spilled all kinds of ink trying to explain, describe, and, and articulate what in the world is being said here in Hebrews chapter 2, all right? And so we're going to have 30 minutes in this passage. We're going to kind of dive pretty deep. And so let me go ahead and tell you guys, if you haven't had your coffee, Jump in there, grab it. It's all right. You can get up. This is church. It's fine. You can still get up because you're going to need some coffee because we're going to move and we're going to go deep this morning. So that's where we're going, all right? Hebrews chapter 2. If you guys were here last week, if you guys remember, we looked at, in a sense for the audience, a newly discovered reality that they got. 
Uh, the writer last week compared Jesus to the angels, and for that audience, they had worshipped angels, and they had thought angels were possibly going to inherit the kingdom that was to come, and the writer of Hebrews corrects all of that for them. He says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you aren't to be worshipping angels, because in fact, the angels are worshipping Jesus Christ, and if you want to be worshipping the right thing, worship Jesus. And in fact, it's not angels that are going to be ruling the kingdom to come, but it is actually Jesus Christ, God's Son, Him who is in the same nature of God, but also the one who has been chosen to rule on behalf of God and over the kingdom that's going to come in the future. And in light of that brand new reality, the author of Hebrews comes and lands a warning shot off their bow, and he says this, hey, in light of all your culture, in light of all your tradition, in light of the momentum that's been going toward angels, you're going to have to take this newly discovered truth about Jesus Christ, and you're going to have to cling hold of it and hold it tight. Because the currents of your culture and the currents of your tradition and the currents of Judaism that they were a part of at the time were moving them in a direction that was contrary to the reality and the identity of Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews says, basically, don't drift away from Jesus. That's going to be the point this morning that he's going to have for them. It's going to be the point that I have for you this morning. Don't drift away from Jesus Christ. This is an idea we've kind of been hitting all all semester long, but it's going to be an idea we continue to walk through because if you and I drift from Jesus Christ... The results can be catastrophic. And that's what we're going to see this morning for this audience and for you and I. If we drift from Jesus Christ, it's not going to cost us heaven and hell, but it's going to cost us something that's available to you and I that for many of us, we have no idea that it's available. It's going to put at stake something for you and I that if we're faithful and we walk with Jesus Christ for a lifetime, something is available for you and I that for many of us, we've not even heard about, nor do we realize we have an opportunity for. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 2, all right? This idea, don't drift away, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. Simply put, verse 1, as the writer starts off, what we're going to see is that there was a possibility that the audience had. And the possibility the audience had is that they could drift away. And one of the things I want you guys to notice, too, is the pronoun that gets used, all right? Simple Bible study observation. What pronoun gets used throughout verse 1? It's the pronoun we. Notice, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Notice that the possibility that he's going, the writer of, of Hebrews is going to present to his audience was a possibility that the author himself thought he was also capable of. The possibility, particularly, that they could drift away. And the reason why I kind of like this passage, if you guys have been here for a few weeks, you realize I'm quite the analogy man. And so this whole passage essentially is an analogy, right? He says, don't drift away. It's going to use the analogy of drifting to, to communicate and talk about a possible spiritual reality. So what does it mean to drift? Simply speaking, if you were to tie yourself up to a dock, no matter where the water were to take you, no matter its strength, no matter its direction, if you had tied yourself up, you're not moving. And what he's going to say is don't untie yourself from a dock and allow the currents of culture, religion, and the different things in their society to pull them away. And particularly in this case, the dock is Jesus Christ. Verse 1, pay much closer attention to what you've heard, particularly what I just said in chapter 1. What I talked about of Jesus Christ being uh, God's sovereign king, he, he who will inherit the kingdom to come, even earlier in chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is the clearest means to get the revelation of God. If you want to know God, look at Jesus Christ. Because he shares the exact same representation with the Father. And in fact, he's the greatest means that for you and I to know the word of God, to know God himself, and to know what God requires. And so because of that, cling to Jesus. <laughs> Tie your ship, tie your boat up to Jesus Christ, and no matter the storms, if you're tied to that dock, you won't drift away. And kind of as we move through, what you're going to see is the consequences of drifting. In fact, kind of, as we kind of look at verse 2, what we're going to see in particular is that there is a peril for drifting that they would have faced. 
As we look at verse 2, we're going to see in particular is that there are a few conditions that are going to come up in verses 2 and 3. And these conditions kind of set the stage to explain the current that would have pulled them, all right? Verse 2, notice the first condition. For if, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, condition 1, what was the word that was spoken through angels? Uh, tradition holds it that, that a lot of Judaism and even uh, I mean Galatians talked about that the angels helped deliver the Old Testament law to the people of God in the Old Testament. So the, the author's point is, hey, if the angels delivered the Old Testament law, and the Old Testament law did not change condition one, condition two also being, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. And so he kind of lays out two conditions. He says, if in the Old Testament the angels delivered the law, and the law did not change, and if you disobeyed the law, it brought a penalty. That's kind of scenario one. He's going to say, he's going he's to kind of hearken back with two conditions that take them back to what was familiar. And he says this, that if you walked in the Old Testament and you disobeyed the law of God as the people of God, it brought a penalty to it. God's judgment still came on you as the people of God for disobeying. And if that's the case, then he's going to move to a reality that's for you and I in verse 3. And he says, if that's the case, then how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's kind of confusing what he's saying. But let me kind of, kind of try to explain it this way. What the author here is going to do in verses 2 and 3 is make an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's going to make the argument of what was true for angels if it led to a result, then if it's true also for Jesus, it will lead to an even worse result. All right? But this argument from the lesser to the greater is something that you and I do all the time in common day language. So, for example, if you love the food at Sabisa, you will love the food at Christopher's. All right? uh, no one of us would argue that Christopher's is less good than Sabisa. Amen? Right? Uh, also, let me kind of give you guys another example that would maybe provide you guys a little insight into our own worship leader, Tyler. Where'd Tyler go? There you are, Tyler. You're going to like this. Uh, I've noticed, and, and kind of walking with uh, college guys, there are kind of two breeds of guys in college, right? Uh, this to give you guys a little insight and provide you guys another example of an argument from the lesser to the greater. But there's two kinds of men in college. There's one kind of man that's kind of what I would call the old school kind of man. When he takes a shower, because he doesn't take baths, he uses a bar of soap, all right? And only a bar of soap and maybe shampoo on a good day, all right? He's never seen conditioner, all right? But I've also begun to notice uh, over the last few years, there's a new breed of man emerging in college, all right? And this new breed of man, unlike many men, are beginning to use products in their bath time, shower time, that were at one point explicitly designated for women, all right? So this new breed of man, like Tyler, who's a representative of it, uses a loofah and body wash, all right, when they shower, all right? And some of you guys are like that. Some of you guys are using your loofahs. You haven't seen a bar of soap in years, all right? Tyler is one of those. He's kind of a, a model citizen for that new breed, all right? Uh, if, you guys, if you're a guy in here and you use a loofah, could you raise your hand? All right. There's a few scattering, but you also notice all the musicians, they're all using loofahs, all right? All right, new breed of men, all right? Okay, here's the thing I've noticed, though. As you move from the single life as a man to the married life as a man, there's another transition that happens, all right? Uh, very few men would argue that the single life of a man is, is better than the married life of a man, right? So all of us would argue that from singleness to marriage, we're moving from lesser to better, right? What I've also noticed is men transition in that stage, as I've watched this happen, uh, their bath products also really shift, all right? And so now, as a man goes from living with a bunch of guys to living with a woman, he has a new access to a whole new set of bath products, all right? And so as a man moves from singleness to a marriage life, his bath products change. So the lesser to greater statement would go like this. If Tyler's bath products were girly as a single guy, can you imagine what they're now like in marriage, all right? Are you with me? That's how we argue from the lesser to the greater, Okay. That is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, okay? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And let me kind of take you back to the drifting analogy, all right? 
if in the Old Testament drifting along the current of the Old Testament law led to a penalty, can you imagine what the damage would be like in drifting according to that which Jesus Christ has revealed? If drifting according to the law led to a penalty, how much more severe would the penalty be if we drifted from the revelation of Jesus Christ? If Jesus Christ has revealed himself in a way that's all the better than the Old Testament law, and if Jesus Christ is the king who will one day reign over a kingdom that the angels will not reign on and the angels are worshiping Jesus, if you disobeyed that angelic law, the Old Testament law, the law of the Ten Commandments, if you disobeyed that and it led to a penalty, can you imagine the penalty that will come if you disobey the word that Jesus Christ has bought? Let me kind of remind you guys as we kind of walk through the peril of drifting here. Who can drift? The author includes himself in this discussion. So this discussion is about what can happen to you and I, even if we've trusted in Jesus Christ. We can drift from the truth of Jesus Christ and even drift into disobedience as to what he's revealed and what he's called you and I to. And so what's the drastic consequences? What will happen if you and I drift? What's the peril that comes from drifting? And as we look at verse 3, notice he says, if that's the case, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's a set of questions that we kind of got to slow down and hit here in verse 3. And the questions are, what does it mean to escape? Escape from what? And first of all, if I were to say, hey, yesterday there was a tornado warning, but we have all escaped from it. The context helps you realize we didn't get hit by a tornado, right? If I were to say to you guys, last night the Aggies were down by 14, but we escaped. We all know from the context of what it meant to escape, we escaped from the jaws of defeat, right? Right there, the last quarter. It was amazing if you stayed, all right? It was great. <laughs> so what's the writer of Hebrews trying to say, all right? From what will we escape? And, and particularly, he says, in, in terms of drifting, he says, if we neglect so great a salvation, what does it mean to neglect so great a salvation? And then what does it mean if we do that? What's the result of it? What does it mean that we won't escape from Typically, this is where you're going to have to kind of hang with me. I'm going to give you guys kind of, uh, because these warning passages are going to come up over and over in the book of Hebrews. And so I kind of need to lay some groundwork for you guys. Kind of as we look at this idea of escaping, as we look at this idea of neglecting salvation, there's a few different uh, historical, traditional interpretations of this, of this passage and what's happening here. Uh, kind of the first one I'm going to give you guys is, is what is typically probably the majority take. Uh, it's, it's a time, uh, historical, traditional view. In fact, I'd argue if I were looking look at your podcast, if I were to look at the books on your library, this is probably who you're listening to. This is probably who you're reading. This is the view that you'd get if you walk through the book of Hebrews, listening to uh, whoever you guys like to listen to. And so what is this view? The view is this. Uh, from a Reformed view, the, the view is that this would be what is known as a test of faith. So if you were to drift, you're drifting away from the truth of Jesus Christ and you're drifting into disobedience in that viewpoint, for the most part, and this is kind of oversimplistic, would be that, that drifting, you're, you're drifting away from the truth of the gospel and you're drifting into disobedience, according to that viewpoint, would mean that it shows that you were never saved to begin with. That if you've drifted from the dock of Jesus Christ and you've gone down the currents of culture, wherever they've taken you as to what you believe, if you've drifted from the gospel, according to that view, they'd say that that drifting shows you never had salvation to begin with. Maybe you were hanging out in the church. Maybe you were hanging out on the dock, you know, getting a tan and eating some good food. I don't know what you do on the dock, um, but let's say you're doing that, right? But then you at some point drift. That viewpoint would say you, your drifting shows you never had faith. And so drifting, they would understand it to be a test of faith. And the results of your drifting or not drifting have everything to do for them about heaven and hell. He- heaven and hell, all right? 
uh, hail. So, I don't know what I was doing there. All right, uh, so that's one view. Uh, I, I, I'd submit, uh, obviously you can tell because I set this up to begin with, I'm going to take us a different direction for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, as you look at the book of Hebrews, I'm going to argue to you guys as we walk through this book, the author is absolutely confident of his audience's spiritual status. Look with me in verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Look at how he refers to his audience. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. His audience are those that he sees to be believers, and he's confident of that. Even more so, who can drift? He's going to include himself in those who can drift. And so, for this viewpoint, I think they have some problems because you're going to have to include how in the world do you explain that the author himself could drift and show that he's not saved? Oh my goodness, what do you do with that, right? Uh, The second thing I'd argue is, every time you see the word salvation in your Bible, it doesn't always mean heaven and hell. It doesn't always mean forgiveness of sins. Salvation can have a very different context. And especially for one who's speaking to an audience that had very much of a Jewish background, their first instincts as to what salvation was was not a spiritual reality, but is very much more so a physical reality. When someone that had a Jewish background, as you look through the, uh, the Old Testament, whenever anyone talks about being saved in the Old Testament, for the most part, almost the great majority interpretation of salvation in the Old Testament is deliverance from death. <laughs> it's physical salvation from enemies and from kingdoms that are going to come and ransack and take them captive. So salvation, for the most part, for them in the Old Testament, its basic meaning, often more often than not, was physical and not spiritual. And so, for some that come to Hebrews chapter 2 and some of the other passages we're going to see uh, this semester, many will argue that one's drifting shows whether they're saved or not. It's a test of their faith. Another position, another view would be what's known as an Arminian view that would see that one's drifting doesn't mean that you never had salvation, but they would argue that you had it, you were at the dock, you had salvation, you had a relationship with Jesus, but your drifting means you lose your salvation. In fact, I'd argue that's one of the easiest and the clearest to debunk because as you look through the Gospels, look through the New Testament, if you and I have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we've entered into that relationship absolutely freely. You and I cannot do anything to merit a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is why God the Father had to send His Son to die on our behalf because only the Son could do what we could not do. Hebrews will say that He tasted death so that we would not have to. And He takes our penalty away from us so that we can enter into a relationship with Him. We come into that relationship absolutely unconditionally. All that you and I do to enter into that relationship and to have our sins forgiven is that we trust Jesus Christ in His death and His resurrection, that He took the penalty of our sins away and His resurrection showed that He has power over death and over sin. But for an Arminian viewpoint, they'd say that if you've trusted Jesus Christ, that happens, sure, you've got heaven and hell, you've got heaven, you've got your sins cleansed, but if you drift from Jesus, you can lose that. I'd submit and I'd argue, no, no, no. If you've entered into that kind of relationship unconditionally, you don't lose it conditionally. What Jesus Christ has promised to you, He's promised to you absolutely unconditionally, that if you've trusted in His death, He's forgiven your past, your present, and your future sins. It does not matter what you do because His death forgives you of your sins and you've entered into grace that covers over all your sin. That's why Jesus will say in John 10, He says, I gave eternal life to my sheep and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus' point is that if you've entered into a relationship with me, there's no way that you can be snatched out of my hand. You are absolutely secure. You don't have to wonder whether you're going to be with me in heaven, because if you've trusted in me, your confidence rests on what I've done and what I can hold. Not on what you will continue to be able to do or what you'll continue to be able to walk out. Your faithfulness to Jesus does not determine whether you get heaven or hell. The only thing that determines whether you get heaven or hell is if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and whether you've uh, believed in His death that took the penalty for your sins. 
And so if you've made that decision, then heaven is, is a completely done reality for you. But the question becomes, then, why am I motivated to live righteously? If Jesus has taken the penalty for my sins away, and if I've got heaven, I'm going to be in eternity with him, why in the world should I live righteously? And if the current of my culture and what's easy is to move me down into sin and move me down into unrighteousness and move me into places of an understanding of truth that are contrary to the word of God and according to what our culture would say, then why cling to Jesus when it's going against the grain? Why do I cling to Jesus when it costs me something? What's at stake? What's my motivation? Ultimately, I'd argue kind of a third view for here for you guys, which would be kind of a, a Grace's view. Not that it's not that we hold it all by ourselves, uh, but the viewpoint I'm going to give you guys is what's known as loss of reward. All right. So we come to Hebrews chapter two and we come to some different passages. I'm going to argue to you guys that what's at stake here in our faithfulness to Jesus is not heaven and hell, but it's something in addition to that and separate from that. That what's at stake for you and I as, as we walk with Jesus Christ, if we're willing to be faithful to him for a lifetime, is that it's the possibility to receive something that very few of us even know about, and that's what we call it reward. Reward that's in addition to heaven and hell. In addition to getting your sins forgiven. In addition to what God has already promised to you absolutely, unconditionally, that he's going to do for you. And if you're absolutely secure, the question is, why are you motivated to live righteously? And the motivation that we see through the Gospels and we see throughout the New Testament epistles is one of reward. Reward that's something in addition to, in addition to forgiveness of sins. Let me give you guys a few passages that kind of bring this idea up. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this may be really brand new and novel for you, alright? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul will say this, For we must all believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Will you and I, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, be judged on the basis of what we do? Yes. And that might be, for some of y'all, a newsflash. <laughs> will you be judged in such a way that it will lead to hell? No. But your judgment will lead to what we would call reward or loss of reward, okay? And notice this. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so Jesus, one day once you die and you stand in his presence, he will evaluate you and evaluate your life. And it will be on the basis of how you live. And that evaluation will lead either to reward or to loss. Let me give you guys another example. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul will say this. That if we've died with Jesus, if we've trusted in him and his death and his resurrection, then we will live with him. We're going to have a relationship with him for all of eternity. And if we endure, if we're faithful, if we go against the current of culture, we will also reign with him. Notice, what has the context been of Hebrews chapter 1 so far? The context has been, as we've come to the end of chapter 1, it's been about Christ's kingdom to come and a day to come. A kingdom that you and I don't see right now, but a kingdom in which he will rule over all the nations and he'll set it up from Jerusalem itself. And when he says in chapter, what Paul says in 2 is that if we, if we obey and we endure, then a reward that we'll receive is that we'll get to participate as co-heirs in that kingdom to come. It's, it's stated even clearer in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 have some of the most interesting passages because you see Jesus Christ evaluate his people. He evaluates several different churches in Revelations chapter 1 to 3. One of those is in this section in Revelation chapter 2, and he says this, uh, speaking to the church, he says, He who overcomes, he who uh, does not drift, he who is faithful, he who obeys and walks with me for a lifetime, to him and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. Do you guys remember where that comes from, that quote? The all cap section? It comes from a section that we read last week, Psalm chapter 2. Remember why we read it? Because in, uh, in verse 5 of uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews quotes back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 being that psalm that describes 
God's sovereign selection of one son who one day will come and rule over all of the nations. But notice, the writer of Hebrews is going to say that psalm is referring to Jesus Christ, but notice what Jesus does in Revelation chapter 2. He takes that psalm and he applies it to you and I, and he says if you and I are faithful and we obey him, our deeds all the way till the end, then you and I will get to participate in that kingdom to come. You and I will get to reign with him in a reward that's in addition to forgiveness of sins. For some of you guys, this may be a brand new, crazy different idea. Here's the take home and here's the point for you guys I want you guys to get. What's the motivation for you to live righteously? What's the motivation for you and I to cling to Jesus Christ even when it costs us something? It's not out of fear to prove whether we're saved or not. You know whether you're saved or not by, on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've made that decision, then you can have confidence that you will spend all of eternity with him. The motivation that we have to live righteously is all about a, a pursuit of reward. And those rewards are something that scriptures speak of all throughout the New Testament. And we'll keep coming back to this idea. But it's something in addition to forgiveness of sins. Which is why as we look at the end of chapter 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Christ's kingdom rule to come. And then look with me in chapter 2, verse 5. Look at where he's going to go and we'll look at this passage next week. Look at where he goes next. For, he did not, for God did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, and what he's about to do in the rest of the passage is describe yet again that Jesus is going to rule the kingdom to come. And so you have this whole business of Jesus' kingdom before this passage. You have this whole business of Jesus' kingdom after this passage. And smacked in between is this warning. It's almost like a little parenthetical thought. And the point of it is, hey, Jesus' kingdom that's coming, if you want to have a part in it, if you want to rule and reign with him and share in his glory and his honor, what you've got to do is obey and continue to walk with Jesus Christ, even when it costs and even when it's against the grain of culture. Uh, Honestly, for me, as I kind of walk through college, this is one of the most pivotal truths and one of the most pivotal things I finally grasped in my life. I had no idea of rewards. I had no idea that something else was at stake, something else was available to, I, to myself if I just uh, walked with the Lord, if I just was faithful to the Lord for a lifetime. It's that kind of thing that presses me forward. It's that kind of thing that invites you and I to continue to walk with Christ for a lifetime. And so if it's that worthwhile, if it's that significant, then how do you and I go about not drifting? He gives us the reason why, because we want to avoid judgment, but then he's going to give us how we avoid judgment and how we find a solution to this peril. And really, actually, what we're going to see is kind of a prescription, if you will. Look with me back in verse 1, chapter 2, all right? So, so he said, hey, I don't want you to drift, because if you drift, you're going to miss out on the reward that's to come that's in addition to forgiveness of sins. And so if, if I want to grab that reward, then how do I do it? How do I go about fixing this issue, and how do I go about preventing the possibility of drifting? He gives us a solution in verse 1. He says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. Well, what is it that we don't want to drift away from? It was the word spoken through angels, or sorry, uh, back to verse, the end of verse 3. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. What is it that you and I have heard? It's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. If you and I will hold to that, if you and I will pay more attention to it, then you and I will not drift. In many regards, as I was kind of thinking about this this week, I thought, you know, we've kicked off all of our small group Bible studies. And, and honestly, for me, um, this is the 13th Bible study at Grace that I've led, all right? <laughs> uh, we're studying the book of Colossians that's really, really rich. But I found myself this week kind of, frankly, to be honest with you guys, kind of bored. <laughs> I was kind of bored with it. Uh, I've led Bible studies for a while now. I've already studied Colossians. And I just found myself Thursday night after leading a Bible study, just kind of bored. Um, I came up here this morning, was prepping through my own notes, my own challenges and applications, and, and one hit me between the eyes, and that was this. 
the challenge that he's going to give to them in order for them to walk for a lifetime is that they would pay closer attention to this word, to this truth that's been revealed. I found myself this week a bit bored, <laughs> a bit as if it had been rehearsed, a bit as if I already knew it all. And yet the reality will be for you and I as we open the word, as we jump into it, is that it, it does not have depths that we will ever exhaust. <laughs> it does not have things that we will never yet be able to pull out and see anew. It has a depth that we can never reach. And so you and I are invited to continue to pay closer and closer attention to this word, to continue to dig deeper, to continue to sit and soak in this thing. I want to ask you guys this morning, uh, in many regards, what's your interaction with the word of God? What's your interaction with that which Jesus has revealed and opened and made available to you and I? If you come here on Sunday mornings and and this 30 minutes uh, on a good day or 40 minutes, if I get long-winded, is the only time that you guys get some time in the Word of God, it's not enough to prevent you guys from drifting, all right? You and I live in an information age in which we are just saturated by information, all right? Um, Even on my new phone, I I can just get so much just on my phone, even singing at an Aggie game at times, all right? And in the midst of that flood, for you and I, we've got to flood ourselves with the word of God that buttresses against that which we often get through media, through TV, and through different things. I want to ask you, to what extent are you saturated in this thing? To what extent are you spending time into it, and how careful are you paying attention to it? You know, honestly, uh, as you kind of look at this thing, one thing that's interesting to me is you look at verse 4, is look at, in a sense, if the solution is to pay attention to this, look at the marketing campaign that goes with it. Uh, Verse 4, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Why does he bring up verse 4? What's the point of it? In many regards, it's kind of, I think he gives you guys the prescription to the solution, and then he gives you guys, in a sense, the ad campaign to that solution. (laughs) When you think of the Word of God, what does he want you guys to have an image blazoned in your mind? He wants you guys to consider this is that which God has spoken and that which God has validated with miracles and messages and gifts in ways that you should have absolute confidence in this thing. One of the questions I want to ask you guys, two questions as we wrap up this morning is, how confident are you in the Word of God? How confident are you that this is God's spoken word, that this has divine authorship? Do you, do you approach this thing with hesitation? Do you approach it as if it is not inspired by God or that it is not without error? Double negative, all right? That it's not inherent, all right? What's your approach to it? How, how confident are you in, as you open this that God is going to speak? You know, honestly, last spring we kind of went through a series on hard questions and one of the things we tackled was, hey, does absolute truth exist? And the other thing we tackled is, is this thing reliable? Is it trustworthy to, to reveal to you the truth of God, who God is and what God is doing in history and what God has asked you and I to be a part of? If that's a question you're not totally sure of, I, I'd encourage you a few things. One, that podcast we gave you guys last spring, all kinds of internal and external evidences. We did philo- philosophical things. We did some scientific things. We gave you guys a bunch of answers. And so I encourage you guys to kind of go back through that, back to that uh, podcast if you like. The other thing I challenge you guys too is if you're not confident in this word of God, then your entire spiritual life is hanging on a thread. <laughs> if I'm not confident in this, I have nothing to say to you guys on a Sunday morning. I have nothing to say to you guys. Because I, then I have nothing that actually is, I'm that confident of that God has spoken and that confident of that can change your life. The reason we center out of the text, the reason we teach it so detailed is because we think this is the word of God and that it can change your life. So I want to challenge you, if you're not absolutely confident of that, check out a podcast, but I also encourage you to come talk to me. The biggest thing for me, the, my biggest hope for you guys is that you guys, as you end college with us, as you've had maybe three, four, five, six years with us, is that you'll have confidence in this book. Confidence not in our preaching, not in our church, but confidence in the Word of God, because it is this that is the revelation of God, and it is this that will change your life. 
Second thing I'd say is, hey, if you're not absolutely sure, come talk to me. Send me an email. I'd love to answer questions. I'd love to wrestle with you on that. Second thing is, if it is the word of God, then how much time are you spending in it? If God has spoken and it is reliable to be his voice and what he calls you and I to understand and to know and is sufficient for all that's needed for life and godliness, then how much time are you spending in it? If, if you're coming just on Sunday mornings, then I am absolutely stoked you're here and I want to push you this week for just five minutes a day, spend some time here. <laughs> for just five minutes a day, spend some time here. If you're the kind of person that you're not really opening it much in the week, that's fine. I want to push you just a little bit and say, hey, make a goal that's going to challenge you but not exhaust you and, and, and just frustrate you, all right? If you're the kind of person that you're spending some time in this thing, I challenge you to go deeper, all right? The thing that the Lord gave to me was, hey, my word cannot be exhausted. I want you to go even deeper than you have. I don't care how long you're going to walk with the Lord for a lifetime. If this is the solution so that we don't drift for the entirety of our life, this solution has got to have some depth that we can never plumb and pull out the entirety of just yet in our lifetime. And if that's the case, I'm going to challenge you guys to dig deep. If you're spending time in this day in and day out, I'm going to challenge you to go deeper. <laughs> Come and edit with a fresh expectation that God is going to speak and show you something new. Uh, even more so, I'd say uh, one of our purposes of why we do our small groups, if you guys have ever been in one of our small groups, is because we want to teach you not just, for example, if you're in our small groups this semester studying the book of Colossians, we don't want to just teach you all the nuggets and all the truths of Colossians. Uh, what we want to do for you guys is teach you how to open the word of God and to understand it for yourself. I think for a lot of us, as we open it, especially if we open a book like Hebrews, it's really challenging, just really intimidating at times. <laughs> and, and if you fail to spend time here because you're a bit intimidated by it, then that's all right. Welcome to the club. Uh, Peter will say that Paul will write some things that are really difficult to understand. So even the biblical authors at times are going, what in the world? You know, uh, What's Paul thinking? What's Paul saying? All right, If, if you're in that place, let me just say, hey, I'm, I, welcome to the club. And, and the reason we're doing the Bible studies the way that we do them here at Grace in a way that I think no other church does here in town is we want to teach you not just the Word of God. We want to teach you how to study the Word of God. Our greatest hope for you guys as you guys leave us, whenever that is, is that you guys would have a deeper love, a deeper confidence in the Word of God, and a deeper capability to open this thing up, interpret it, and apply it to your life. Because this is the solution to not drifting. This is the solution to life change. This is the solution to know who God is. If you want to walk with the Lord, if you want to know Him, if you want to have your life change, this is where we center, this is where we begin, and sometimes this is even where we end. And if you're not completely confident of what this is, then I want you guys to wrestle with that question. If you've landed in a place where you are confident of what this is, then I want to wrestle and challenge you guys to go even deeper, go even longer, and spend even more time. And stretch yourself to spend more time in it, continuing to plumb out whatever God wants to reveal to you. All right? That's my hope. That's my challenge for you guys this this morning. So let me go ahead and wrap us up, close this, since we've gone a bit long. All right? Father God, we give you great thanks that your word is sufficient for all of life. That it is sufficient in all that we need to know, uh, to know you. It's sufficient for all that we need for life and for godliness, Lord. And I pray that you'd give us a deeper confidence in this thing. Uh, For some of us, if we're not confident that this is what you've revealed, that this is your voice, your sovereign unfolding and unveiling of truth, Lord, I pray that you would uh, cause us to wrestle with that. And for those of us who are confident what this is, Lord, I pray that you would draw us deeper into it. uh, That you would fan a freshness and a flame and a passion and a hunger to know it and to sit in it, and to soak in it, and to be challenged by it, Lord. I pray that your spirit would transform us as we sit and spend time here, Lord, and I pray that you would give us some really rich times, even this week, uh, even on our own, or even with our roommates, Lord. I pray that you would just show us and amaze us with what is in this thing, and that you would draw in us a deeper love for it, and a deeper confidence in it as a revelation of you, and it means to know you, and it means to walk with you, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son, and by your Spirit. Amen.